Matthew chapter 5, we'll be looking at verse 33. Maybe a little bit of a review here in a moment, but I want to give you maybe a little insight into um, myself, and that is years ago when I started preaching God's word, I asked the Lord, please never let me step into the pulpit and preach something that's false. Never let me dishonor your word. And I have to say that sometimes it's been difficult because I've handled some difficult subjects and passages of Scripture. And what goes on behind the scenes, nobody here will ever know. But I can tell you that there's been times where I've fasted entire week just to be able to understand one verse of Scripture. Because when a man steps behind a pulpit, to teach or preach God's word, he better take it seriously because he's going to be judged with all strictness. When I began to look at the Sermon on the Mount, I had been taught in my younger days that the Sermon on the Mount didn't apply to us. And if you were in a largely dispensational church, you probably heard the same thing. This applies to the millennial kingdom. Well, I rebuffed that when I gave the intro to this, but I I had to approach the Sermon on the Mount, and I can't tell you how many times I read it. G. Campbell Morgan would read a book 40, 50 times before he even began to outline the book. I can tell you I probably read the Sermon on the Mount hundreds of times trying to come to an answer as to why is this here? Why did Jesus preach this sermon to the people he was preaching to? Then I began to study it, take it apart, put it back together, read the commentaries. And I began to come to an understanding that Jesus Christ preached this sermon for two reasons. Number one, to show us what the entrance requirements to the kingdom of heaven were. And we find that specifically in the Beatitudes as we went through them. And number two, to show us the ongoing character qualities of someone who's already entered the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. The sermon, Jesus begins to wrap it up in chapter 7 and verse 13, and there's an invitation to enter the kingdom of heaven. Enter in at the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and you know the passage. When we went through the Beatitudes, we understand that you have to come to the place where you are at the end of yourself and understand you don't have what it takes to enter the kingdom of heaven. You cannot get there. You have to become poor in spirit, which means beggar-type poor. And you have to be given the righteousness that is required for the kingdom of heaven. Notice I said you have to be given that righteousness. It's not a righteousness you can produce on your own. And in this sermon, Jesus says 
Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And can't you just imagine the self-righteous Jews standing there, pharisaically saying to themselves, I can do that. And Jesus says to them in this sermon, Except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. And there were, in the eyes of the people, no more righteous people than the scribes and the Pharisees in that day. And Jesus called them what? Whited sepulchers later on in his ministry. And so for the common people to hear Jesus say, and unless you are more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees, you're not going to get into heaven. Their jaws must have dropped. As they realize that's impossible. And folks, that's exactly the point of this sermon. It is impossible. Unless you are given the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is then lived out from you on a daily basis, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. You have to have that righteousness given to you. And so then Jesus begins to tear apart their religion, one concept after another. And he starts that in verse 21. You have heard that it was said by them of old, thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. Sounds safe enough? Sixth commandment, don't go out and commit murder. But then Jesus adds to it, but I say unto you, if you are angry with your brother without a cause, You've broken the sixth commandment. Oh, how they must have stood there and said, I'm guilty. At least, hopefully, some of them did. Because when we preached it, when I went through it, we all said, we're guilty. But if you call your brother a name, character assassination, we call it, you've broken the sixth commandment. Then he goes on in verse 27, you have heard that it was said by them of old, thou shalt not commit adultery. And he says, look, you've looked at a woman, you've lusted after her in your heart, you've looked at a man, lusted after him in your heart, you've committed adultery. And they were taught as long as you kept yourself from the physical act of adultery, you're okay, you, you've obeyed the seventh commandment. Jesus, that's not so. And then we come to verse 33. And while Jesus is not describing a particular one of the Ten Commandments, he is describing some Old Testament legislation that relates to swearing, not profanity, but taking of oaths and vows. So let's read it, verse 33. Again, you have heard that it's been said by them of old. And, and I need to stop there because every time I read that statement, I, I say to myself, we need to be careful. Because just when we think we've figured it all out and we begin to teach that, we could be wrong. We need to be careful. For 200 years, they put together what is called the Mishnah. And I'll get into that in a moment. 
and it had all of these systematized sayings on all these uh, parts of the Old Testament and commentaries, uh, uh, commentaries on various parts of the Old Testament. And this is what the Jewish people were relying on. And Jesus is tearing it down. He says, you've, you've misunderstood it. You've heard that it was said by them of old. And that's why I started with, when I step into the pulpit, I want to be careful because they didn't know they were teaching wrongly. They didn't know that what they were hearing was not what the, te- the, the Old Testament was teaching. And they believed it, and they applied it to their lives. And Jesus is going to show them, you know, you guys are wrong. Thou shalt not perjure thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay, for whatever is more than these cometh from the evil one. This passage that I've just read teaches that there needs to be truthfulness in our communication with others. Jesus, your Savior, my Savior, is interested in truthfulness in our communication, not the taking of oaths. Honesty and faithfulness to one's word is what is in view here. Jesus is teaching that people ought to be able, get this, people ought to be able to depend on what we say without the use of oaths or swearing. The word again, again you have heard, leads us to the next subject. We've covered the sixth commandment, the seventh commandment. Now we're going to cover some various Old Testament legislation as it applies to oaths. So we're into the next subject. And may I say that what we see in this passage is God is concerned about every area of our lives, including our communication. And so Jesus is going to correct an area that is very important to God, and that is oaths. Now, oaths were originally designed to promote truthfulness, and in the time of Christ, they had become occasions for clever lies and deceit. The true direction in which the Old Testament pointed was the importance of truthfulness in our communication. So I'm going to have to spend some time talking about the culture, the society in which Christ lived, and the time in which he preached this sermon. So what was the current teaching? You have heard that it was said by them of old, thou shalt not perjure thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. What was the false teaching at the time of Christ? Now, in the days of Christ, the abuse of oaths actually caused the people to be less truthful. The society was 
filled with oaths, taking oaths by various things as guarantors uh, that they were speaking the truth. The people were ready to swear an oath for almost anything and almost nothing at all. It had become a large part of that society. Sometimes you hear people do the same today. Well, I swear on my mother's grave. And what they had heard from their teachers is what we're going to be looking at. You have heard that it has been said by them of old. Well, this is what they'd heard. Don't swear a false oath. Don't break your oath. Well, at first it seems innocent enough, but I left part of it out. Thou shalt not perjure thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. What is very important is what they were teaching. Yeah, they were teaching, don't perjure yourself. Every statement accompanied by a valid oath must be true. And we're going to look at what they considered a valid oath. In other words, they were teaching the people to keep their oaths. Do what you have sworn to do in God's name. Sounds innocent enough, doesn't it? We'll get into what they left out. Psalm 15, verse 14 says, Offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. This may be one of the verses that is under consideration, one of the verses more than likely that was in their Mishnah that they had a commentary on or sayings from the various rabbis of old. In other words, the rabbis were teaching every promise accompanied by an oath that was made in the name of God must be kept. And this was how the scripture was understood by them. What they had done is they had taken the scriptures as they pertained to swearing and vows and oaths, and they put together their own emphasis. And I'll explain that in a moment. But let's look at what, what is an oath. We don't use them a lot today. But what is an oath? Hebrews 6.16 says, For men indeed swear by the greater... And an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. And so here's what an oath is. An oath is taking the name of someone or someone greater than you, the one who's making the oath, and you're invoking that someone or something greater to give greater credibility to what you're about to say or what you have said if you tack it on at the end. Most times, it is the name of God that is being invoked. It is calling upon God, inviting him to witness to the truthfulness of the statement. Now, in the Hebrew, the word for oath is most of the time in the passive tense, indicating that we should use an oath when we are called upon to do so. It's not something that we do on our own. The use is passive in nature. The verb is passive in nature. In other words, when we are called upon to use an oath, that's when we should do it, such as in a court of law. 
The nature of an oath, one commentator says, is a religious and necessary confirmation of things doubtful by calling God to be a witness of the truth and a revenger of a falsehood. So what we need to understand is an oath is not to be entered into lightly. It's not something you use in everyday conversation with people around us. The purpose of an oath was to keep men from lying. The purpose of the Mosaic legislation as it related to oaths was to keep oaths for more solemn and serious matters. Now remember that because that's important. An oath was to be used for solemn and serious matters. There were two types of oaths. Assertive oaths. I swear I have not or have done something. Or promissory oaths. I swear I will or will not do something. So the statement there in verse 33, thou shalt not perjure thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths, seems biblical. However, something was missing. The circumstances under which to make an oath, that's what was missing. What was the missing ingredient was the serious circumstance or the solemn occasion on which we should use oaths. In that day, the day of Christ, any kind of oath for any reason was acceptable. That's what they were being taught. And so it led to frivolous and meaningless oaths. They were commonplace. And the result of that is that no one took them seriously anymore. They had misplaced the emphasis. The only oaths or vows that they had to fulfill or that were deemed binding were those that were made to the Lord. Notice verse 33, you shall perform unto the Lord thine oaths. These were kept the ones that were made in the Lord's name. Others were optional. Actually taught this in the Mishnah. As long as you did not swear falsely by God's name, it was okay. It was allowed to swear falsely by anything other than God's name. This is how they interpret it. Now understand what this does for communication. It actually separated language into the sacred and the secular. Let me repeat that. If you attached God's name onto it, your oath or your vow, it became sacred, something you could not break. You could not swear falsely by God's name. But, for instance, if you swore by the temple... That wasn't as binding. That became secular, something you could break. So they actually separated language into sacred and secular. And so these words in verse 33, thou shalt not perform thyself, uh, thou shalt not perjure thyself, but thou shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. These words are an allusion to a number of Old Testament passages which we're going to look at. First of all, 
They're not a, an exact quotation. They are an allusion to numerous verses. But what it shows us is Jesus is concerned with the perversion of the word of God in general by the scribes and the Pharisees. Turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20 and verse 7. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 7, you'll recognize Exodus chapter 20, hopefully is where the Ten Commandments are listed for us. Verse 7, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Now normally we interpret this as being, you know, you shouldn't use God's name as a swear word, which in a sense that's correct. Literally translated, it means thou shalt not lift up, utter, or take the name of the Lord thy God unto vanity or unto falsehood. It's the idea of uh, forbidding you to commit perjury or violating your oaths if you attach God's name to it. Take a look at Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 12. Leviticus 19 and verse 12. God says, And ye shall not swear by my name falsely, neither shalt thou profane the name of thy God, I am the Lord. And that kind of gives you an idea how to interpret that commandment uh, in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 7. Numbers 30 and verse 2. Numbers 30 and verse 2. If a man vow a vow unto the Lord or swear an oath to bind his soul with a bond, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceedeth out of his mouth. Now these are all verses that are behind the teachings that the Jewish people were hearing from their rabbis. Take a look at Deuteronomy 23. Deuteronomy 23, verses 21 to 23. Deuteronomy 23, verses 21 to 23. When thou shalt vow a vow unto the Lord thy God, thou shalt not be slack to pay it, for the Lord thy God will surely require it of thee, and it would be sin in thee. But if thou shalt forbear to vow, it shall be no sin in thee. That which is gone out of thy lips thou shalt keep and perform, even a freewill offering according as thou hast vowed unto the Lord thy God, which thou hast promised with thy mouth. Now these are very serious verses, verses that the Jewish people took seriously. And they began to put together a series of teachings around these verses or their understanding of their verses. A valid oath to them included swearing by God's name or an acceptable substitute to it. And so they were using God as a guarantor of the person's truthfulness or faithfulness to what is said and sometimes calling a curse upon them if they were not telling the truth. And so an oath is a solemn statement affirmed to be true and you do that before God. Now, I mentioned the Mishnah. What is the Mishnah? The Mishnah is the oldest authoritative collection of Jewish oral 
laws. It was compiled over a period of about 200 years, had commentaries, had sayings. Things were systematized and grouped together under various headings. And so they had built up an entire legalistic system around the taking of oaths as they understood the teaching from the Old Testament. They had a whole section called, I think it's called a tractate, dealing with oaths. And they divided the oaths up into various classes, and they gave examples of each of these valid and not valid or invalid oaths. And there was an entire section on vows as well. And it gave details. Details as to when they were binding and when they were not. So if you wanted to mislead somebody and they didn't know the Mishnah that well, which, of course, most people wouldn't, you could use a vow that was in the class of an invalid type of vow, which was not binding, but because the person heard you use an oath, I should have used the word oath there, not vow, because you used an oath, but it was in the category of invalid, you could get away with lying. One rabbi even said, if you swear by Jerusalem, you were not bound. But if you faced towards Jerusalem when you made the oath, you were bound. So here you are listening to someone. You've got to remember which way is Jerusalem. Because if they were facing Jerusalem, they were bound. But if they just said they were swearing by Jerusalem, you know, and they made that oath that way, then you know, it was an invalid vow or, or, or oath, I should say. Yeah, you're shaking your head, and that's exactly it. I mean, this teaching is insane. The only vows or oaths that they took as being valid are the ones that were made in God's name. Take a look, if you would, to Matthew chapter 23. This isn't the only time that Jesus addressed this situation. Matthew 23, verse 16 Jesus is pronouncing his woes on the scribes and the Pharisees, and hopefully you will remember this section. Verse 16, Woe unto you, ye blind guides, who say, Whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing. In other words, it's an invalid oath. But whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he's a debtor. That's a valid oath. That's something you need to keep. Ye fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifieth the gold? And this is something else that they said. Whosoever shall swear by the altar, it is nothing. But whosoever sweareth by the gift that is upon it, now, now you're bound. Ye fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifieth the gift? Whosoever therefore shall swear by the altar, sweareth by it and all things on it. And whosoever shall swear by the temple, sweareth by it, and by him that dwelleth in it. And he that shall swear, swear by heaven, sweareth by the, uh, by the throne of God, and by him who sitteth on it. What does Jesus say? It doesn't matter what you are invoking in your oath. Keep it. The temple, the gold, the altar, the sacrifice on the altar, God's name, the earth, whatever, whatever oath you make, Ultimately, God owns it all, doesn't he? Keep that oath. And so the taking of oaths had degenerated into detailed rules which let you know 
when you could actually get away with lying and deceptions, and when you could not. Have I made any sense up to this point? Hopefully. Folks, we do this today. What's a white lie? Oops. Oh, yeah, it's just this little bitty thing I tell, you know. And we call it white because white's a better color than black, okay? You know, here's a mom or a dad at home, and the phone rings. Dad, it's so-and-so. Oh, tell them I'm in the shower. That's a white lie. You know what somebody said? Half-truths are whole lies. Half-truths are whole lies. And you know what? We don't do that, hopefully. I have. But haven't we kind of decided in our minds that the uncomfortableness of talking to that person on the phone, I'm trying to avoid, that I'd rather not go through that, so I'm just going to tell as, you know, it's just a little lie, you know. Let me ask you a question. Is it still a lie? It is. It's a falsehood. Under these rules that the ancients had written down in the Mishnah and that was being taught to the people of Christ's day, under these rules, truth was not promoted. Truth was not maintained. Falsehood and deception was promoted. Uh, D.A. Carson said in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, swearing evasively becomes justification for lying. And so the tradition of the rabbis then lowered God's standard for absolute truthfulness in our communication with others. So what did this do then to the people of Christ's day? Well, number one, they were, they were taking frivolous oaths. Frivolous. The people would take oaths when it was not necessary or proper for almost, for almost nothing. You know? Larry goes out, and I'm going to pick on Larry again, meets his wife somewhere. Maybe they're going out on vacation, and, and uh, you know, Lori asks him, did you remember to take out the garbage? Because by the time we get home, that's going to stink. Larry says, yeah, I took it out. And in his mind, he's thinking, man, I forgot that. Not that you would do this, but. <laughs> and she looks at him, and of course, a wife knows when the husband's lying. She says, are you sure? I swear on my mother's grave I took the garbage out. He just took an oath. And because he swore on his mother's grave, that's supposed to add some truthfulness to what he just said, right? But in the first place, should we be taking an oath about garbage? That's my point. Not that Larry would do that. And don't admit to anything, Larry. That's, you don't, don't do that. That's a frivolous oath. It's an oath that's not necessary. 
And so the result of this was what? When the most solemn of oaths were taken, it put them on the same level as every other oath that they were taking. Do you see that? It's like Aesop's fable. You familiar with Aesop's fables? What's the one story you can think of here? The boy who cried wolf. He's watching, I think one version I read, he's watching the town's sheep. In another version, uh, somebody telling what it's about, he was watching his own sheep. But the point is, he was getting bored watching these sheep. So he wanted to have some fun. And so he went running to the town saying, there's a wolf, there's a wolf, he's going to eat the sheep. And the townspeople came with clubs and bats and rakes or whatever to beat this wolf off the sheep. And they came and what did they find? No wolf. And the boy is laughing, he had some fun. The next day he wanted to have some fun. He did the same thing, there's a wolf, there's a wolf, he's coming down from the hill, he's going to get the sheep, we need to do something. Sure enough, the townspeople come running, have their weapons in their hand, no wolf. I don't know how many times the little boy did this just to trick him and have some fun, but there came a time, there came a time when there was a wolf, and he went running to the town, and he had cried wolf one too many times. And the townspeople didn't come because they thought he was tricking them again. Folks, if we take, by the way, the wolf ate the sheep. If we start using oaths, which are meant to be for solemn and, 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 and uh, what was the word I used, severe? Solemn and serious matters. And we start using oaths for everything. The emphasis of the oath is gone. The importance of the oath is gone. It becomes on the same level as everything else. The oaths had lost their meaning. They had lost their solemn force by their overuse and by their misuse. You know, here's another example. Let's say you've got a servant in the house of an honorable state official. And he goes around talking about the honorable chair and the honorable table and the honorable mop and the honorable house, the honorable car and the honorable dishpan. And then when he goes to refer to the official as his honor in his speech, we kind of lose the meaning of the word honor, don't we? The abuse of oaths was seen in their use to substantiate what should have been simple statements that could have been believed. And then there were, the oaths became evasive oaths. People stopped swearing by the name of the Lord, because they weren't telling the whole truth. And they were actually using an invalid form of an oath because they knew they weren't telling the truth. And so people started swearing by other things. They thought those other things were not as significant as God, and hence those oaths were not as binding, as they were being taught by their rabbis. They would swear by their own life, They would swear by their own health. They would swear by the king, heaven, earth, temple, Jerusalem. And we just read the passage in Matthew 23. 
And what Jesus just taught in that passage is that it doesn't matter what you're swearing by. All oaths are binding. All of them. None of our words are exempt from God's presence. And truth is required in one situation as well as another. It doesn't matter what you're swearing by. You know, it is really twisted thinking that makes an oath less binding if it is based on something of lesser value. That's pretty twisted thinking. And so they allowed for oaths that actually promoted deceit and lying. The oath was nothing, not binding, if it was, for instance, sworn by the altar as opposed to the sacrifice on the altar. And what Jesus taught in Matthew 23 was this. Anytime one calls upon any part of God's creation to bear witness to a false saying, the truth is profaned. God's name is profaned. And we dishonor God even if we do not invoke his name, but we invoke part of his creation. So what is the result then of frivolous and evasive oaths? The result is an absence of truthfulness. An absence of truthfulness. Case in point would be the boy who cried wolf. You see, the purpose of oaths was to promote truthfulness according to the Old Testament proper understanding of those verses and to make it solemn, to make it sure, to make it serious, a serious matter. To take an oath or a vow and not fulfill it, or it was used to attest a lie, was to profane the name of God under the law given to Moses. These were considered irreverent or false oaths. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. Look at verses 69 74. Now Peter sat outside in the court, and a maid came unto him, saying, Thou also was with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all, saying, I know not what thou sayest. When he was gone out into the porch, another maid saw him and said unto him that, were there, this fellow was also with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with what? With an oath. I do not know the man. And after a while came unto him they that stood by and said to Peter, Surely thou art one of them, for thy speech betrayeth thee. Then began he to curse and to swear, saying, I know not the man. And immediately the cock crowed. Now, in my younger days as a Christian, I heard this preached and I heard a well-meaning man get up into the pulpit and say, you see, Peter went back to his own life. He began to use profanity, and he began to curse and swear. That's not what's going on here. The swearing was not profanity. It was an oath given with special intensity. And Peter gave two oaths here, which increased the strength of it. But that, that did not make his statement more true. He was calling on God to curse him, to punish him if he was not telling the truth. 
Of course, Peter was lying. Yes, Peter lost self-control here, and he's calling down curses upon himself, and what he did is he relapsed to an earlier habit, and that earlier habit was the teaching of the rabbis that Jesus is speaking against in Matthew chapter 5. And so at this point, Christ's teaching did not govern his behavior False teaching governed his behavior. And then it says, And Peter remembered the word of Jesus who said unto him, Before the cock crows, thou shalt deny me thrice. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Peter lied that he knew Jesus. But for a Jewish man, to attest to that lie by invoking God's name, he just broke Exodus chapter 20 and verse 7. He took God's name in vain. Is it any wonder that Peter went out and wept bitterly? For a Jewish man to use God's name from his mouth in vain is a very serious matter. The one thing we need to remember here is God forgave him and Christ restored him. And here is a man who stood before the Jewish leaders pointing his fingers at them saying, you crucified the Lord of glory. And I look at that, and I have a sermon I preached many, many, many years ago about the change in Peter's life when Christ restored it, forgave him and restored him. And that's what I want to leave us with today. Larry, you may have lied in your past, but if you've confessed it, God is forgiven. Amen? Matt, you may have lied in your past, but if you've confessed it, God has forgiven it. Amen? And I can call out everybody's name here. God requires truthfulness in our communication with one another. We don't have to use an oath to attest to the fact that we're telling the truth. People ought to be able to look at us and based on our character and, and our track record, if you would, our testimony, and be able to say that man's telling the truth. I was standing in the office of the place where I work, and usually if I'm one-on-one -on -one with somebody, they're being very careful with their swearing, their profanity, because they know I'm a preacher. And they'll even apologize to me. But boy, you get two of them together, and then they start telling a story or doing whatever and back and forth, and then the swear words start to, the profanity starts to double and triple. And I just looked at two of them as I was standing there, and they said to me, you don't swear, how come? Thank you. Every idle word 
that men shall speak. They shall give account of it in the day of judgment. Swearing kind of stopped. Now, I didn't do that to shame them. I did it as a reminder to myself that if it weren't for the grace of God, I would be using the same language that they're using. If it weren't for the fact that God put his spirit within me, gave me the ability to obey him and his righteousness to be lived out day after day in my life, I would be doing the same thing that they're doing. We can praise God that there can be truthfulness in our communications with one another because of what he's done in our lives. Will we slip? Yeah. I remember a day I slipped at home as a 10-year-old kid, 9-year-old kid. Had to go into the living room. I don't even remember what I did. But I do remember how difficult it was. I had my hands folded behind my back, and I was fidgeting. I was leaning up against the wall, and I had to tell my mom, I'm sorry, I told her a lie. We need to have truthfulness in our conversations, and it doesn't need an oath to prove to people we're telling the truth. Those are for solemn and serious occasions. In two weeks, and the next time I preach, we'll be getting into the next verse. What is Christ actually teaching us? Very simple. Very simple. Let your yes be yes and let your no be no. You don't have to attach an oath to it. You don't have to swear. Father, thank you for all that you do for us. Thank you for your word. And I pray, Lord, that you help us to understand this in the context in which you preached it and that you would help us to be truthful in all of our communication. I pray it in Jesus' name.